As President Obama continues his global long goodbye tour, SITREP this week gets in-depth on America's position in the world. And we'll talk IS as Britain boosts its contribution to the international coalition involved in Iraq and Syria. We're sending an additional air-seeker aircraft into the theatre to improve the surveillance capability that we have. More than 40 years after the end of the Vietnam War, the Southeast Asian nation and the United States have finally taken steps to overcome the last big hurdle between the two old foes. Barack Obama has been in town this week on his way to the G7 in Japan and during a visit to Hanoi announced a lifting of the American ban on arms sales. He said the improving ties were an example to the world of reconciliation. Because our veterans showed us the way, because warriors had the courage to pursue peace. Our peoples are now closer than ever before. And with this visit, we've put our relationship on a firmer footing for decades to come. It's taken many years and required great effort. But now we can say something that was once unimaginable. Today, Vietnam and the United States are partners. But as he enters his last summer in the White House, how will Barack Obama leave America positioned on the world stage? In the last week, Pakistan has complained that the U.S. carried out a unilateral drone strike on its territory, albeit to take out the leader of the Afghan Taliban. The Syrian peace talks are going nowhere fast, leading to questions about America's diplomatic influence. And NATO Secretary General is constantly being asked about how worried he is about the possibility that the U.S. will cut back its contribution to the alliance in the near future. Well, joining me now to discuss America's global standing is Professor Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science at the University of Utah. He's uh, unusually in London, not in Cedar City. Welcome to you from London. Um, and BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here with me in the studio. So, Christopher, before we give Michael the chance to respond, do you think the rest of the world still looks to the US as the last remaining superpower in the world's policeman? No, because they can't fix things. And it's now become, during the past five years or so, very, very clear that in spite of America's brilliance in many ways, certainly their supreme um, military power, they cannot fix anything. And you can now hear, as we did earlier, when Obama was talking, Mr. Obama was talking in Hanoi, and he said that warriors had had the wisdom to pursue peace in that war in Vietnam. That was absolute nonsense. The truth was, the United States lost the war. They had to do a runner. They had to get out. They pulled out. And the pictures of the helicopters hauling the last people out from the United States Embassy uh, uh, says it all. And they have mm. not, not recovered from that. That's the truth, what, and that's part of the legacy that Obama knows he has to bear. What about today, then, Professor Michael Stathis? America can't fix anything, Christopher says. I think that's uh, part of the nature of a modern uh, great power. Uh, the United States is a very powerful country, but no country is uh, powerful enough today to have its own way in every uh, situation. That has been a very difficult uh, uh, lesson for uh, the United States and the people of the United States uh, to comprehend uh, since the days of, uh, of Vietnam. And uh, both of you are quite right uh, that... Uh, the appreciation that Vietnam was not only the single greatest foreign policy disaster for the United States, it was a lost war. 
And uh, in so many ways, on so many levels, the United States has yet to totally recover from that. And um, Obama has uh, uh, made some gestures. He is uh, making some headway in some ways to do some significant things in this last year. But uh, the, the fact is, Vietnam changed the future and the history, uh, particularly in foreign policy, of the United States. And, uh, well, uh, speaking of uh, British uh, motorways, uh, we've really never... (laughs) never, And you know something of that now. Actually, my wife does. She did the driving uh, most of our trip, (laughs) and she was fantastic. Uh, But uh, the United States hasn't quite found its way... She's sitting next to you, Michael, or something. Uh, She did the driving, and I closed my eyes. Mm. Uh, But she was was marvelous. Um, on that point, though, do, uh, not the driving, obviously, but uh, U.S. foreign policy. Um, do you think there's a chance that President Obama's stance has been that he doesn't want America to be dominant on the world stage, to be the world's policeman anymore? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think he recognizes uh, that the, those days uh, uh, are past and that we've entered into an era uh, uh, of cooperation. Indeed, uh, when he ran for president... Uh, initially, uh, he made it very clear that uh, the majority of his foreign policy would be based on multilateralism uh, rather than unilateralism, which was more of a reflection of the previous administration. Um, and uh, I, I think that in great part that was a recognition of modern uh, modern reality. But clearly he had an agenda of things that he wanted to achieve uh, in his time as president. And uh, I know we'll be talking about a couple of those things as we go on. Yeah, and and as he's seen rising poll numbers at home recently, do do you think his position in history will be more widely acknowledged outside America than in it? That is normally... um my appreciation and uh, the appreciation of many Americans. Uh, What is it, uh, the biblical reference to a prophet um, um, uh, being rejected uh, first uh, in his homeland. Uh, and this has been very true of, uh, of, of Barack Obama. Uh, he uh, has had a very difficult time uh, with um, uh, his uh, own position, his own policies uh, at home. And I think very much he's uh, appreciated much more uh, abroad. You know, and it was a, there was a similar situation with Bill Clinton uh, years ago where I think Bill Clinton was appreciated far uh, more abroad uh, than, than he was at home. And um, uh, I, I think that is going to continue through, uh, through this year. Now, how history will view uh, uh, Obama, uh, well, uh, that will be taken care of both by political scientists and historians uh, in the United States uh, and, uh, a- and elsewhere. But uh, I will be one of them. My my next research project will uh, be a paper uh, uh, talking about uh, the last stage of, well, actually, if you will, the accumulation of uh, foreign policy in the eight years of the Obama administration. Mm. It's an interesting thought at the moment. Um, we, we mustn't lose sight of, of, of Vietnam by saying this was the great disaster in American foreign policy, um, we have to accept that those outside of America, especially those in trouble, make an assumption that if America is on their side, they can actually do something, America will do something about it. Um, and, but then when they see what America has done, let's say, in, in, in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and for the moment in, in Syria, 
perhaps even in Libya, uh, people start saying, well, hang on, this, 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 okay. this may not work. But the most important thing is that America started with Bush, demonstrated they do not need, in fact, the military do not want the backing of other countries. What they need is other countries giving them their political support in in a forum such as the United Nations. Just briefly looking ahead, Michael Stathis, um, talking about Obama's successor, looking increasingly like the race to the White House will be won by either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. What influence do you think either of those two as president would have on America standing on the world stage? Oh, my, that's a loaded question. Um, I know, and I said briefly as well. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, well, uh, t to begin with, uh, uh, with Hillary Clinton, uh, to a certain extent, you're going to uh, have the possibility of a continuation of uh, much of the Obama foreign policy, with one exception. Uh, she, um, uh, I think, will be a little bit more hawkish in certain situations than Obama would have been. Uh, but uh, uh, otherwise, uh, I, I think you'll see great similarity. Now, uh, th there's kind of a hidden bonus here. Uh, I anticipate that uh, should she win the election and become the first woman to be president of the United States, which, of course, is, would be huge, I think that uh, maybe uh, suddenly the number one uh, uh, unofficial diplomat uh, uh, to the world is going to be the first gentleman, uh, her husband, um, mm. former President Bill Clinton. I think that he will play a significant diplomatic and, role in that presidency. And by the length of time you talked about her, I'm assuming you don't even want to go there with Donald Trump, do you? If I must. <laughs> um, got, I'll give you 10 seconds. Well, uh, well we, uh, first of all, uh, traveling uh, throughout Great Britain, we have had a chance uh, uh, to respond to questions uh, from people here and many Americans who mm. are visiting here uh, uh, about this. And, uh, of course, um, at, at our house, uh, of, of course, we are... Uh, shivering in fear of uh, what uh, of what might uh, uh, might might take place, but um, uh, we have hope that uh, well uh, mm. uh, other things uh, will will happen and um, th things will take a more positive road. But this is potentially uh, a, a a very hazardous. Uh, moment in both American history and uh, global international history. Uh, a Trump presidency uh, would be unprecedented in so many ways. It can't be answered in a uh, in a short answer. And certainly not in 10 seconds. Uh, Michael, Christopher, stay with us. Uh, just a reminder, you can download a podcast of this program. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. SITREP with Kate Still to come, the apparent evidence of British special forces in Libya. And we'll be on board HMS Queen Elizabeth, the first of the Royal Navy's incoming aircraft carriers, as she welcomes her first commanding officer. The Times today is reporting that British Special Forces are operating in Libya and have fired a missile to destroy an IS truck which was carrying explosives. It's long been supposed that Special Forces have been on the ground there. The Ministry of Defence, of course, refuses to confirm that. The Chairman of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, Crispin Blunt, told BFBS he wants proper parliamentary oversight of the involvement of British forces in Libya. The government then needs to make some explanation when, it's, when Her Majesty's forces are killing Her Majesty's enemies uh, in her name. And that is actually quite a serious, uh, that's quite a serious point. 
Well, for his part, the Defence Secretary Michael Fallon told MPs earlier that he wants more support for a political solution to Libya's problems. But is that practical with IS taking advantage of the power vacuum? The former British ambassador to Libya, Oliver Miles, can join us now. Good to speak to you today, Oliver. Well, we talked many times on this programme about special forces operating in Libya. It appears now we have confirmation, or at least apparent evidence, that they definitely are. Yes, I, I think I'm a bit sceptical, but that's probably right. Why are you sceptical? Because there's only one report. It's come from a battlefield. There are, I've seen all sorts of reports. I saw a report that the Iranians are taking over, but I don't believe it. Mm, but it's, it's at least conceivable. Yes, it's certainly conceivable. Which and was... after all, if, if there were special forces who were doing what we assume they would be doing, which is intelligence and so on, in support of Libyan forces, and if they saw it, um, a truck full of explosives driving towards them, no doubt they'd defend themselves. Is it fair to say, Oliver, if you knew that they really were in Libya, that you wouldn't say so on this programme anyway? I would say whatever I felt like saying. <laughs> What's your assessment, though, of what British and other foreign forces could do in Libya to help stabilise the government and, and slow the surge of IS? Uh, nothing much at the moment because the, the, the game is political at the moment. What, what the international community has got to do and what they're trying to do through the United Nations is support the so-called government of national accord and turn it into a real government of national accord. And I think perhaps one area that has been a bit neglected is that we should be using our influence with Libya's other friends, if that's the right expression, um, Saudi Arabia, the U United Arab Emirates and so on, and trying to, to stop and Egypt, trying to stop them supporting other forces in Libya and make sure that everybody is, is singing from the same hymn sheet. Mm, Christopher, we heard Michael Fallon talking about the, the political progress in Libya, but it has been slow. Does the new Prime Minister, Fahez Mustafa al-Saraj, have the necessary support, support to fix the fractures that have been left after the breakup after the Gaddafi regime? It's not, it's not simply if the, the support that he's got is the fact that um, there are so many organisations, and if we you know, talk about the militia, for example, um, if we talk uh, about the different factions with the army that's down in Tobruk, uh, and, whether, and whose side that really is on, apart from the, uh, the major general's side, Fayez al-Saraj does not want people to upset the balance and I think even the diplomacy that you that's reflecting in tel sort of television interviews and radio interviews by uh, uh, foreign secretaries and defence secretaries that uh, say that we are willing to give forces uh, to help the government there may not help. We have got, I think, in Libya a classic example which used to be possible, where it is as Rab Butler, very um, uh, famous British politician, used to say, sometimes it's better to say nothing. And I think we've probably reached that point with Libya. And the next few weeks, we're going to actually see how effectively it might be. Mm. Oliver Miles, assuming that there are British special forces in Libya, what exactly would they be tasked to do? What can they do? Well, that's a military question rather than uh, one in my, in my field. But uh, I suppose the answer is uh, intelligence, supporting the, the um, people who are actually fighting against... Uh, Daesh against the ISIL or whatever we call it at the moment uh, and supporting them not I think um, with their weapons but with in intelligence and advice and, and uh, that's about it I think Early last year what, what was happening in the in Defence Ministry the foreign, uh, and in uh, the Foreign Commonwealth Office uh, there were three meetings that I sort of know of um, and there was an assessment, it was a morning briefing, where have we got to with Libya and what should we be doing and what are the Americans and what are the French doing as well. And uh, one of the points that came up from, I think it was the Chief of Staff for Operations, 
that if we are thinking, even thinking, there might be a United Kingdom deployment, and by a deployment, that's a very public sort of large movement of forces as opposed to as an insertion, which you get with sort of small uh, groups of uh, uh, specialist forces. What we need to do is... two or three things. We ought to use specialist forces for what they were really built for originally, and that is for reconnaissance and information gathering and intelligence gathering. So, for example, the Royal Marines will be sent in to do a, a very quietly to do a beach survey in case you have to do beach landings. Um, you have to see how far uh, certain areas are defended, by whom, um, 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 how, and how efficient, with what uh, what equipment, how much local support there might be, etc. In other words, you are gathering the most important mm. form of intelligence and that was human intelligence and match, matching it then, which okay. you could get with near obs- uh, Earth observation. And that's what these guys have been doing. And but they've also been taking out certain, uh, certain elements in conjunction, it is hoped still in conjunction, with yes. the United States forces. Oliver Miles, uh, you followed the changing political landscape in Libya since you were Britain's ambassador there in the 80s. What chance of stability do you think soon, any time soon? Well, there is a chance. Uh, there is this government of, of national accord. It's quite convincing. Uh, it's not got the support of, of, by any means, all the political factors, let alone the militias. Um, but that's the, that's the way it's got to go, and I would give them a chance. I think that uh, uh, it's been a, a long haul. It's looking somewhat brighter now than it, than it, uh, it did a year or so ago. Um, you, in the introductory part of this uh, um, discussion, I think you mentioned something like the growing uh, influence of, of Daesh in Libya. I think that's a mistake. I don't think their influence is growing. They're limited to one area, which is around Surt uh, Gaddafi's old stronghold. Um, they've been more or less eliminated, perhaps completely eliminated, from two other towns, um, uh, Durna in the east and Sabrata in the west where they seem to have a presence so it's wrong to think of them as a growing force Alright, Oliver Miles former British ambassador to Libya thank you for joining us from Oxford today Well, both the US and UK are, of course, already heavily involved in the international operation against IS in Iraq and Syria. This week, we've seen the start of a major Iraqi military operation to try to recapture Fallujah from the Islamic State group. The extremists have held the city for two years and thousands of civilians are thought to still be there. Fallujah is just 40 miles west of Baghdad and is now the subject of a large-scale offensive, which is seeing Iraqi forces backed by US aerial support. Why now, Christopher? Um, well, the, the three sides to this. One is that it hasn't. It's not just happening now. I mean, cause for example, when uh, in uh, in January two thousand and fourteen, that Fallujah was taken over by uh, I I uh, by the uh, ISIS, um, the bombing started, and I- Iraqi and American forces, including American air forces, have been bombing Fallujah now for. For, for more than two years and one of the restrictions on it is there are probably something like 50,000 civilian refugees in there at the moment mm-hmm. so it's been a long progress but if you look at a map of, uh, of, of what's the things that they've still got to take up in the north you've got Mosul uh, Erbil and, and Kirkuk uh, further, when you get south, you've got Ramadi, Baghdad, and Fallujah. Fallujah, Baghdad is being attacked even by uh, ISIS, 
at, at the moment, and that's mm. largely because they're losing ground in all those towns that I've referred to. They've got to keep on the move. They've got to show their success. That's the way they, they, they can recruit people. And also, they have a, a, another aspect of this. They've got to wear down the enthusiasms of the of the mm. Kurdish uh, Pashmurga and also the Iraqi forces themselves. Well, if, they, if, they, if the Iraqi forces keep winning, they'll keep attacking. Well, still with us is Professor Michael Stathis, Professor of Political Science at the University of Southern Utah. Um, Michael, um, Fallujah was the site of two bloody battles against American forces in 2004. Even though at this stage the US is only providing air support, must be concerns at home that it could again see casualties in the fight against IS. You know, uh, there are probably only two cities in Iraq that most rank-and-file Americans uh, know the name of. Baghdad, of course, would be one city. Fallujah would be another that is commonly heard uh, because of, uh, uh, well, in particular, the one major battle for Fallujah, which was won. And uh, this is going to be a key point, I think, in whether, uh, in fact, there is a continuation of an erosion of ISIS-Daesh uh, on the ground in Iraq and Syria, or whether uh, ISIS Daesh is going to be able to uh, uh, rebound and uh, start, uh, well, keeping uh, an offensive. Mm. Uh, President Obama has made a number of comments that, in fact, um, uh, ISIS Daesh uh, on the ground in Syria and Iraq, and in Iraq in particular, is being eroded. And uh, uh, the battle, this current new battle for Fallujah, I think is going to be, going to be a key point in that discussion. Mm. Our Defence Secretary, Michael Fallon, has announced that the US has told its coalition partners the advancing ground operations mean this is the moment to step up the fight, and he's asked for an increased contribution to the effort. Uh, we are looking to see what uh, further we can add to the particular fight. I'm announcing today, for, uh, as an example, Mr Chairman, and perhaps this committee ought to hear it first, I'm announcing today that we're sending a an additional air-seeker aircraft into the theatre to improve the surveillance capability that we have. This is an aircraft, as you know, that collects and analyzes uh, intelligence, but which helps us to better, more quickly identify and select uh, targets in the campaign. Michael Stathis, I mean, overall, what do you think the American perspective and stance is on this, com this mission at the moment? On the one hand... Uh, Obama does not want to be in a situation uh, where there will even be a suggestion of making a, a major commitment of ground forces. Uh, that's not going to be on the table. But uh, I, I don't think that there'll be much limitation on using uh, uh, air forces uh, to, uh, to any extent. I think that uh, Obama will be willing to go to great ends to offer support uh, for Iraqi forces, for instance, uh, in this particular situation, and in support of, as Christopher said, uh, the Peshmerga uh, and other Kur Kurdish forces in other areas, uh, especially in an election year at this moment, uh, the image, uh, even the suggestion of the commitment of American increased or significant American ground forces in any situation uh, in Iraq uh, is something that could be politically disastrous 
both for the coming election, but also for the legacy of Barack Obama. I mean, if, if I could ask you just sort of to look into your crystal ball, you said a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> sorry, sorry to do this to you, but uh, I, know, I know you're a you're a brave man. Um, you said earlier about this being a moment in history in terms of the way things are changing for America on the world stage and what's at stake with the presidential elections. Uh, can you sort of give me a sense of how it feels for a, for a person yourself who watches these things closely? Uh, I mean, is this perhaps one of the most interesting moments in your career? Well, after 66 years, um, uh, I've uh, I've been able to have a kind of a unique view of American foreign policy and uh, and history, and I do think this is one of those key uh, uh, key moments. Um, and uh, uh, as uh, Barack Obama leaves office, I think unless something untoward does take place in the next few months. Uh, the 53% uh, job approval rate uh, that he has right now, uh, if anything, I think is going to improve. He continues to do some risky things. Uh, this move concerning Vietnam uh, uh, was uh, had a great deal of political risk to it. Uh, his uh, normalization of relations with Cuba. Um, was enormous mm. uh, and, uh, uh, and 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 very very risky. So there are going to be a number of things I think that uh, are going to be credited to him uh, eventually, uh, even though people will be reticent to give him credit uh, for very much. In oh. my opinion. Um, uh, he was handed, uh, of course, a very difficult mm. uh, 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 hand of cards to begin with, and he has done uh, a, a, a fairly good, uh, fairly good, good job. He certainly right. had aimed to end the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. Clearly, mm. things have happened, and that's not going to to take place. But the world cannot lose sight of the fact that he played a key role uh, upon assuming office of uh, fending off a, uh, a potential global economic disaster. I think ultimately that uh, is going to be his great legacy. All right, Professor Michael Stathis in London for SITREP today. It's been good talking to you. Thanks for your time today. Thank and you. uh, safe travels back to Utah. Well, HMS Queen Elizabeth I of the Royal Navy's new class of aircraft carriers now has a commanding officer, Captain Jerry Kidd, stepped on board this week. With sea trials for the ship next year, his number one priority. Well, our reporter, Ali Gibson, was in Resyth to meet the new CO. There were snapshots aplenty. A senior naval officer, Captain Simon Pettit, handed over the reins to HMS Queen Elizabeth's first commanding officer. <laughs> Captain Jerry Kidd takes charge of the Royal Navy's largest and most advanced warship. We need to get the ship out to sea, make sure she works properly, as we expect, through a whole package of sea trials, to make sure that when we take it to the fleet in the summer of next year, she's ready to embark aircraft. We do all those trials with rotary wing, helicopters, and also the Joint Strike Fighter, the New Lightning too and then on to operations wherever the government needs them. So it's a very, very busy period coming up for the ship's company, moving from build to operations. Up on the flight deck, they're putting the finishing touches to the heat-resistant paint so aircraft can land vertically. HMS Queen Elizabeth and her sister ship, the Prince of Wales, will form eight acres of sovereign territory between them, supporting operations and humanitarian missions across the world. LPT Michelle Matteson is one of the 600 crew. It feels like an exciting time. Uh, we're all looking forward to getting on board, working as part of a ship's company and looking forward to sailing early next year. The aircraft carriers are the collective work of the Ministry of Defence and Industry, the Aircraft Carrier Alliance. 
built by six shipyards across the UK and assembled here in Resyth since 2010. HMS Prince of Wales is a few steps behind in build. Captain Ian Groom is the senior naval officer. I think what's going to be hugely enjoyable about this role is taking a team of people and developing that into a ship's company which is going to take a ship the size of the HMS Prince of Wales to sea and develop that capability. Building on the work that's already been done by Queen Elizabeth as they've gone through this process. So we can take their lessons and then we can learn and we can build on that and we can optimise and truly develop this new capability for the Royal Navy. HMS Queen Elizabeth may have been assembled in Scotland, but it's in England where she'll officially begin her military service, as Captain Kidd sees his ship's company head out to sea early next year. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Recite. Captain Kidd, eh? Well, I hope it didn't see them head out to sea because, quite frankly, they were rather hoping we'd take him with them. But uh, <laughs> he's a good—he's a good guy. I met him once. Uh, he is a, he oh. is a first-class man, and he's—he's—he's he's, he's on on the wish list now. Is he to be then one day to be first sea lord? You don't get a job like this. Mm. I tell you, the, the most important thing—I know we touch on it all the time—but the most important thing, example we've got in this ship, is there isn't enough manpower to sail that ship. To Six, man that ship properly, seven, up to 720. There isn't enough manpower to continuously do this, but it shows a higher problem. It does feel and that, that is, and that is, no, hang on. There, it, it, it is shown the higher problem is to train people technically and have people in training when they are also wanting them at sea. Mm. And it, at the moment, I, I it keep, cannot be done. I keep trying to give you back to the Royal Navy, Christopher, but they won't have you, will they? They didn't want me when they had me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I mean, I'm the only person who's ever been told after six months, we're letting you go, as if I worked for Woolworths. <laughs> Dear audience, we're letting you go now. That's all we have time for today. Many thanks to all of our guests. Let, let us know what you think. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show at a podcast. Just search online at BFBS SITREP. We're back. Same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Chabot. Bye-bye for now. I'm going. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2. More mic.